Campside Chats, a podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we googled Murray Bookchin and sat down to discuss the title essay of the anthology, Post-Scarcity Anarchism. I'm Jake. I'm with Communist League Tampa, and joining me tonight is Grant. Hey, Grant here. Rosa? Rosa, here again. Whoa, amazing. Donald? Hey, it's Donald. And Lexi. This is Lexi doing a Bing search for Mikhail Bakunin. <laughs> uh, so, basically, uh, yeah, we took the internet's advice, and we Googled uh, Murray Bookchin, uh, the piece that we were supposed to read, and I think we all read, was the title essay to the anthology Post-Scarcity Anarchism. I know Bookchin has sort of become famous recently, mostly because of Rahava and basically the fact that, um, I guess, Asalan, the sort of leader of, I think, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, uh, became interested in his writings as like a theoretical alternative after the collapse of the Eastern Bloc, and yeah. now there's, there's they basically move. they're, yeah. There's like a move towards Bookchin from Marx, you know, as an alternative left-wing theorist to base, you know, politics off of, and so you've kind of seen that in the whole Rojava incident, and so, well, not incident, but the whole um, social experiment to kind of build a, um, Kurdish state based off kind of libertarian municipalist principles. But Bookchin himself was a, he started out as a Marxist. Like he actually started out in the CPUSA, like the old fashioned Stalinist. And, and even, even till late in his life, uh, if I could just interject, he, he considered his economic analysis, at least in his own eyes as, as, similar to Marx's or Marxist inspired. Yeah, he, he says capital volume one is basically completely correct and says that, yeah, you know, capital is the best critique of capitalism ever made. I was struggling to find aspects of this that weren't Marxist in an important way. <clears throat> like, um, especially I, I read a little bit of the introduction to this and, you know, he was counterposing what he was doing to, you know, what like new left Maoists or what the People's Republic of China or the Soviet Union was doing. And he was like, oh, they could have Marxism. You know, I'm going to talk about this. How much of like his break with Marxism came from like ecological concerns? Because I know if, I feel like that was kind of because like, the area, the era he was around was still like very kind of pro or at least critical of critically supportive of the Soviet Union and the whole kind of heavy industry, like smokestack socialism. I think it really came from his own experiences in the labor movement and just, I guess, the, the, the apathy of the American working class that he witnessed while he was a factory worker in the 1950s. Hmm. <clears throat> That's really what I understand. 
Well, you basically kind of took up a Marcuse type theory of consumer society, basically kind of uh, defanging the proletariat of its revolutionary potentials. But also his view on on the future and or the future that we live in now, you could say the post scarcity idea is really at the center of the way he contrasts himself with Marxism in at least this older essay of his post scarcity anarchism. And it's it's interesting because he seems to define Marxism as a theory of capitalist scarcity and and sort of bounce off of that. And that doesn't quite line up with a lot of interpretations of Marxism that I know. Yeah, well, I've never really understood Marxist economics to be a science of, you know, scarce resources, like people say, you know, neoclassical economics is. And like, it's, it's interesting, not... too, because his whole idea seems to imply that human freedom is sort of a very recent possibility through technology. Yeah, he has and, kind and of this there, whole dialectic like of history. about the entire world as the industrial West in some strange ways. Yeah, he kind of has like this whole dialectic of history where it's a struggle for human freedom, but freedom has only been actualized now because of the ability to live harmoniously through in nature because of new technology. I mean, that part seemed positively Marxian, especially I've been dabbling around with some naughty books like uh, Uncle Ted's, um, what's it called? I don't know, his Critique of Industrial Society. Oh, uh, Industrial Society in its Future. Right, industrial society you know and what, its future. You know what the epigraph is stuff. to industrial society and its future? No. It's oh, wait, yes, it's Einstein, right? No, no. It's if the Unabomber succeeds and we return to wild nature, can I still keep my car phone? <laughs> <laughs> um, but um Volkchin doesn't seem to have that kind of view of Kaczynski, though. He really seems to think that productive forces are liberatory. Like, it's almost like he thinks that communism failed initially because productive forces weren't developed enough. Well, and he also, like, equates a lot of it to, like, hierarchy. Like, a lot of this seems to be, you know, sort of, like, critiquing, like, the Leninist tradition because it wasn't maintaining, like, the liberatory, like, aspect within its, like, own organization and it's, like, very elitist or whatever. Well, he's yeah. a fair, he's a fairly sophisticated notion of like um, post scarcity. Uh, well, I don't know, artificial scarcity capitalism, relying on hierarchy and bureaucratic like management to enforce scarcity. That he collapses Leninism into because he thinks of that stuff as state capitalism. It seems. Yeah, Am I wrong about yeah. that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, he he probably had been to the USSR, I imagine, because he had been a Stalinist and Trotskyist for so long. And so he probably he very much, you know, saw Marxism as the ideology of this bureaucratic um, society and its proponents throughout the world. And that was his experience of Marxism. And much of the Soviet bureaucracy was basically a technocratic kind of scarcity manager. Yeah, and when you 
see the kind of Keynesian golden age in the you know capitalist you know industrialized advanced industrialized whatever world it's kind of an easy convergence especially when the communist party is advancing keynesian policies in those countries too yeah because um there was a lot of theories in that period of time from people like i think bookchin might have been i know cornelius castoriatus was into this idea that basically soviet society and western society or whatever you know capitalist society you know we're basically converging towards the same type of bureaucratic form of uh industrialized uh you know technocracy you know hierarchical society this has some overlaps with the bureaucratic collectivist critique of uh, rizzi and schachtman yeah well bookshin also he sees it as um partially a um flaw of the system of um soviets itself like, actually, that was one of the things I found useful in this book was um, in the chapter on forms of freedom. He talks about Soviets and kind of their limitations, actually. And he says how the way the Soviets were designed as this kind of federalized pyramid system made the, the central um, authority of the Soviets unaccountable to the base, which made it easier for a single party to basically dominate them. Which is a pretty sophisticated argument, especially from an anarchist who are typically, they just have a very, you know, oh, we just need this, just need more free Soviets, like free Soviets will fix everything, you know, that kind of attitude. Yeah, he has a fairly sophisticated Marxian anarchism. Like, in a lot of ways, it's really more Marxian than whatever productivist Stalinist stuff was going on at the time that was calling itself Marxism. Well, I think he has a lot in common with the Frankfurt School, actually. Like, I, I see him and Marcuse as, like, two sides of, like, the same coin at this point, basically. Because all the stuff that they're saying is, is so similar. Yeah, he yeah. quotes the board. Yeah. What leads him to believe that we're actually, it is actually a post-scarcity society? Like, like, how do you know that the material conditions have been developed enough that you can safely say? Because, I mean... I actually don't I have think... no idea because I don't even know if I believe that we're in one today. Yeah, I don't either. I don't, either. I I don't mean... think we can really get there until you have a planned economy. And he says he says too in post scarcity anarchism uh, that the problem of transition basically that Marxism takes up is is solved by spontaneous self liberatory acts of society. Yeah, um, that's just utter nonsense. <laughs> it's exactly. a standard new left yeah. line. And, yeah. and so if you're eliminating the need for transition, then how do you suppose that a post-scarcity society can, can really be internationally achieved without a central body to desegregate America uh, for the movement of resources and specialists from the core to the periphery? Things like that that would have obviously have to happen for us to really live in a post-scarcity society globally. Yeah. It, it just mean, doesn't seem realistic to denounce the transition aspect of Marxism and but be premised on this very sort of first world oriented view of the world that isn't even totally true for the first world. Yeah. Well he's his point, his point isn't that like scarcity has been eliminated from the earth by capitalism. It's just that the productive forces that capitalism have built up as of sure, you know, sure, writing sure if subjected to central planning would be enough to eliminate scarcity which i think that's true 
Well, he is arguing for central plan. He kind of argues for a municipality is kind of experimenting with stuff on in a decentralized way, which honestly sounds terrifying. Oh. Mao's great leap forward. Yeah, yeah, I, I get that vibe too. Like, I wonder, I wonder if, I wonder if that actually like, like shifted his perspective, like seeing how it actually went. He towards later in his life. Uh, from what I understand, sours a little bit on total decentralization. Is that right? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. In his um, speech that I read towards the end of his life, he says on um, Confederation, he says, he actually critiques Proudhon and Kropotkin. He says, our ideas of Confederation should not remain stuck in anarchist writings of 19th century. In Proudhon's writings on federalism, for example, we find an extremely naive vision of a federation of autonomous communes, quote unquote, whose component members could choose if so they wish to pull out of the federation and go it on their own. But such quote unquote autonomy is no longer possible, if it even was in Proudhon's day. A unilateral choice to leave the federation, after all, could undermine the entire federation itself. We no longer live in an artisanal and craft world. Imagine if the electrical complex in upstate New York autonomously decided to pull out of the Confederation with the Vermont electrical complex because it was piqued by Vermont's behavior. Equally troubling would be a Confederation based on the kind of voluntary agreements that Kapokin found and celebrated in the railroad lines, no less, of his day. The operating principles of 19th century railroad runs are a good example of voluntary agreements and I would humbly suggest that these formulated by J.P. Morgan and co. are priceless. Anarcho-capitalists would doubtless exult in this view presented in Kropotkin's The Conquest of Brad, but allow me to dissent from it. It's funny that he actually goes after The Conquest of Brad, you know, the bread book. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I liked that speech yeah. a lot better than post-scarcity anarchism. No, it's because he's grown yeah, up post- and he's realized that this whole like new left, you know, vision of spontaneous action isn't going to work. Yeah, he does seem fairly yeah. sanguine about the prospects for it here. Right? He's like, "Yeah, man, the kids aren't like down with capitalism anymore," and like, <laughs> yeah. this is a sign that you know things are beginning to turn and the system is beginning to collapse in on itself. You know. And, it's the dawning yeah, of the age but, of Aquarius. <laughs> yeah, instead of federalism, it's, he argues for a confederation, where he says confederation yeah. should be regarded as a binding agreement, not one that can be canceled for frivolous voluntaristic reasons. The municipality should be able to withdraw from the confederation only after basically the whole confederation has decided after a long debate, basically. So I think it's it's more, you know, nuanced vision of anarcho-communism than you get from your usual like bread book type do you think the the later bookchin still agrees with the sort of like i wonder what his perspective was then on marxist class sort of emphasis because remembering listen marxist i mean he i think he has a section titled the myth of the proletariat so yes, that's I have to wonder if that changed. Well, in his final book, he says that he's accused of denying class society. So some anarcho-syndicalists and anarcho-communists have written that I do not believe in the existence of classes. This is a, he says it's a ridiculous accusation. We live in a class society. There's conflicts between classes. And these would exist in citizens' assemblies as well. And it says that it does not forsake the notion of class trouble, but carries it out not only in the factories, but also into civil or municipal arena. So it's hard to say. He says it does not 
that is as long as factories continue to exist as long as proletarians proletarians do not imagine that they are middle class but i learned many years ago while working in a foundry and in an auto plant owned by general owners that workers regard themselves as human beings as well as class beings i thought that was actually an interesting kind of um point that you know sometimes it's you know really it, it's he says that um often things that would mobilize workers were often um, issues that weren't exactly related to the factory. He said, even during my years working in heavy industry, I found it easier to reach workers on the basis of environmental and neighborhood issues than on the basis of factory issues. So I think that was kind of an interesting point that he made. But yeah. it isn't necessarily anti-Marxist, it's just kind of the anti-very uh, uh, economistic, like, workerist Marxist. Well, yeah, like, workers will have, like, all, like, variety of political interests like beyond like their narrow like economic yeah. concerns and that's like the problem with economism is that it tries to reduce the class struggle to workplace issues where it doesn't understand that you know obviously the workplace matters but it's like it can be a launching pad for fighting issues beyond simply you know the the mediation of capital and labor yeah i guess i guess that's what's funny is it's it's only really a rejection of the proletariat though if you think of the proletariat only at the point of production yeah if you think yeah. it's like the proletariat is just whoever produces productive labor because there was a i feel like the cold keynesian regime of that time was basically this attempt to make like a proletariat where everyone was producing productive labor basically well, yeah, and that, that concept of the proletariat is very, like, capital volume one-centric. Yeah. Where it just doesn't, everything yeah. is originated at the point of production, and that's what makes the proletariat the proletariat, blah, 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 blah. So, well, it's, I mean, in my opinion, is like, the whole error of the theoretical, the whole theoretical error at the root of economism is the idea that the proletariat is the revolutionary class because it produces the surplus value and therefore can crash the class by going on a mass strike because of its position in the means of production. But really, it's not the factory system that unites the proletariat and Marx's understanding, but it's association and political parties and workers associations and, and political struggles that go beyond, you know, economistic type. But there is something like historically that makes the proletariat different from like previous classes. Well, it's because it's an alienated pool of labor that's all dependent on the general wage fund, whether it's right. engaged in productive labor or not. It still is dependent on that general wage fund and not on its own capital. So it has a common position of alienation from the means of production. And it's that common alienation that's the basis of class solidarity, more so than, you know, the centralization of the factories, I think. Another thing that's kind of interesting about this, the post-scarcity anarchist piece, is there actually is a lot in here that contradicts stuff he later said. Because there's even a section where he also has like a very sanguine view of what he would later term lifestyleism. He goes like, uh, if for this yeah. reason alone, the revolutionary moment is profoundly concerned with lifestyle, it must try to live the revolution in all its totality, not only participate in it. It must be deeply concerned with the way the revolutionist lives, his relations with the surrounding environment, his degree of self-emancipation and seeking to change society, the revolutionist, can, revolutionist cannot avoid changes in himself that demand, demand the reconquest of his own being. So he's like he's like talking stuff like that, but then like he's literally that's the like person. That's like some Ralph Van Agheim revolution of everyday life stuff. Like that's so it, situationist it, it, sounding. 
totally made me think of the Situationist. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny, it's so funny because Bookchin, like, that's exactly the kind of stuff that he grew up to shit on. And that's what I first, I read this book when I was still pretty sympathetic to anarchism and kind of considered myself one. And I noticed that and it's like, wow, Bookchin is like, he sounds like a hippie in this like, the first thing I read by Bookchin was post, you know, the not post scarcity anarchism, but um, lifestyle anarchism versus um, real anarchism or whatever. Class and, struggle anarchism? Yeah, class struggle anarchism. And I was like, yeah, lifestyle anarchism sucks, blah, blah, blah. And I read this book and it was like, wait, he sounds like a fucking hippie. Like, he's, he's he, you know, and it's interesting because both him and Marcuse had this kind of appreciation for the hippies. That Marxist didn't have that, you know, they really hated the hippies for being petty bourgeois peasant workers. Whereas, like, Bookchin and Marcuse and types saw them as kind of like prefigurations of the new human. Come on, people now, smile on your brother, everybody get together. Try to love one another right now. I adore whales. I think they should have a whole ocean for themselves. But, um, I mean, does anyone have thoughts on his whole lifestyle anarchism versus class struggle anarchism piece? All roads that? lead to dumpster diving with yeah. a, a certain strain of anarchism, but he does seem to have grown past that for sure. Well, it's yeah, extremely... It's... That might be, like, his my favorite contribution to theory that he's given is just the term, like, lifestyle anarchism. Because it really does, like, describe, like, that particular, like, particularly, like, American phenomenon so well. Yeah, yeah, because it, he talks about how the old school American anarchist also had the same individualist streak, like how um like Voltaire Claire and um a lot of the terrorists like the the Luigi Fabristi types. I think that was his name, or no Galliani, the Gallianist, for example. And it is kind of based in this like American pioneer mentality. You know, yeah. the state's never going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do whatever I want, so I'm going to go. I'll keep my guns, my money, my land, and you can keep the change. Yeah, like, like, only you can, only it's, 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 it's... It's almost like crust punk anarchism is like that ideology, but like punk rock aesthetic. Yeah, yeah, that, I mean, that's, yeah why, I, that's why you can have like overlap between them and like the like yeah, paleo right like during like the anti-globalization movement. Yeah, this explains the entire Pacific Northwest. <laughs> no, it really does. It really does. Because there is a lot of, like, right-wing, like, hardcore anti-government stuff up there because people want to basically, like, uh, saw up the timber that's up there and the government won't let them because it's government land. Yeah. Well, if I you, think that's... Sorry. If you look up hashtag rewilding, you'll get a lot of, like, survivalist <laughs> types that are not reading Kamat. I'll put it that way. Well, Pacific Northwest is also a, a front for fascists. Oh, really? Like, um, they have the um, idea called the Northwest Imperative, where they want to form a white ethno state in the Pacific Northwest. So a lot of them actually support, like, the um, Cascadia separatist movement. Well, I guess maybe, it seems like the demographics would work out based on all the stereotypes. Yeah, that's their argument, is because yeah. it's such a white area that they would have a white majority, and they could, you know, just ethnically cleanse that area and have their stupid safe space for whites 
I, I forget if it was Oregon or Wyoming that was set up as an ethno state, like originally. Hmm. So I mean, yeah, I, mean, I don't remember that in the Oregon Trail PC game from the '90s, but yeah, I just remember the dysentery. Well, yeah. that's one thing about Bookchin also is that he kind of fetishizes like Vermont, like town hall style, like democracy, like in the book. Yeah, he seems like uh, he seems like definitely a part of like the you know you can see him from the same milieu that produced Bernie Sanders. You know exactly, what I mean? like you can see like this. It's um, there. You can totally see like how someone could be a Volkchinist and like work in a Democrat Party NGO and like you know do that kind of like you know yeah. be involved in city council and stuff like that and that will be very anarchist praxis. He got a lot of flack from like anarchists at the time because basically, uh, basically he advocated for like like just working in local governments and that sort of thing. And he tried to make an argument that local governments were basically different than the rest of the state because they're local and that totally doesn't count as like the state. So he's sewer anarchism. Yes, it's sewer anarchism. It's it's Vermont sewer anarchism. And you you always get that from anybody. Um, you, You talk to any like local lefty person, like you go to some movies, you'll meet people who are like, no, you understand like it's different on a local level. Like you can win seats on a local level, and it really matters. It's like, well, why don't more people do that then? You know what I mean? Like they got to come out to yeah. Berkeley. I mean, there's you know people do that in Berkeley, and it's just as subsumptive as one might imagine. Yeah, yeah, and Vermont does have like this weird political culture where so much of it is based around like town halls that it does produce like this kind of. Um, it can produce, it, yeah, exactly. And you can get like a figure like a Bernie Sanders like out of that particular political culture. But um, anyways, yeah, I wasn't really the essay that I read, the post-scarcity anarchist one, like, some one, like, generally, I wasn't that impressed. Like, you guys keep thinking, oh, he's a Marxist. He's, he's, he's a very advanced Marxist. Like, I just, I, I, I don't really see it all that much. Like, the point of, the point that he made about scarcity is, like, der- would he directly contradicted by like basic crisis theory like with the falling rate of profit the problem with capitalist production is that it's out that it's like producing too much too quickly and too efficiently to the point where it's losing profit and destroying itself because it is too productive now i don't think that really describes a problem of scarcity so much as a more quote-unquote post-scarcity sort of situation yeah well that's what i was trying to say when i think bookchin looks at marx's economics like people look at bourgeois economics it's you know it's the science of managing scarce resources whereas marx is a critique of that uh so basically uh butchin butchin uh points to a moment in which like the bolsheviks took over the winter palace and they started like just going through the wine cellar and just breaking all the wine bottles as like a moment in which like that's sort of significant because it highlights how they were against like the hedonistic pleasure, liberatory pleasures that are genuinely revolutionary. And that and it highlight and it basically, you know, shows that they were merely managers of cap of capital, of state capitalism. Yeah. And that's what they wanted to be rather than. Well, what's ironic is that 
the actual story is that, you know, the pearls went into the wine cellars and started, you know, spent the whole month basically just raiding them. And it was actually a group of anarcho syndicalists who went in and started shooting at them to get them to go back to work. So that's, you know, that's yeah. the, the complexities of history on the October Revolution are not going to be understood by Bookchin, you know, because he's just going to have a very partisan view on it. Yeah, I mean, honestly, can you imagine like people raiding a wine cellar and not like drinking out of drinking some wine at least like. I mean, when they first like, got into the Winter Palace, I, I know one of the revolutionaries, they stormed through the back door, really, somebody left that open, and just gasped because he'd never seen opulence like that in their life, in his life, you know. Um, they then sort of get lost in the Winter Palace, and, you know, a group stumbles on what's left of Kerensky's provisional government makes them son like write up their own arrest papers because the Bolsheviks who got them were illiterate. I mean, it's an incredible story. Yeah, that is an incredible story. Some fucked up stuff also happened, but that's of just, course. Yeah, I was gonna say in terms of like us like saying he's a Marxist or whatever. I mean, I think it's we're sort of grading on a curve here. I mean, yeah, poor. Yeah, and yeah, we're definitely emphasizing his later his later work in that assessment. I mean. I, He's not totally there uh, because of how much he feels like he has to contrast himself with Marxism. He, well, he makes these leaps in post-scarcity no. anarchism. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm talking about specifically. Reminds me of Endnotes. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I was contrasting him to Endnotes, actually. And he makes very similar arguments about working class identity and the death of the workers' movement. Yes, but compared to Endnotes, his idea about how, you know, productive forces could be reused for, you know, a post-scarcity society is totally at odds with at least uh, Jasper Burns' essay in Endnotes 3 on logistics and the kind of collapse communism you get from the last essay, Spontaneity, Mediation, Rupture, in Endnotes 3. That's where they kind of put out their at least family resemblance to uncle ted kaczynski like with you know all due respect to endnotes like it definitely seems like that was part of what they're imbibing and bookchin delivers what is now known in the jargon as the uh determinant it's not the determination thesis um reconfiguration thesis bookchin delivers this really stirring defense of that old marxian idea that has lost currency with people that believe at least that capitalism has mapped technology to its will if not that technology is incompatible with and uh, de-alienated human society totally and so I, considering that his bookchin's jump off is the critique of alienation more than anything i'm i was just impressed with that yeah i can i can yeah. understand that because he's He's, you know, he's taking factors of social ecology into account, but he's still able to see liberatory potentials of technology. So it's not this kind of primo, backwards looking form of agrarian socialism you, know, no, he, you get with like old school yeah. anarchism. He has ideas for decentralized agricultural commune type stuff in post-scarcity anarchism, but at least it's it's a use of technology rather than a running off to the woods.
Yeah, like what, what really roots him in anarchism here is that his, his fixation on questions of hierarchy and like he really he feels seems to feel very strongly that there's some like authoritarian problem in like social organization that has to be like structurally rooted out and not that, that sort of thing is like based in like the division of labor. Um, I, I certainly I got the impression that he sees the dual problem with technology. It's like a Hegelian problem where on the one hand, it develops the powers, the productive powers of humanity beyond anything that any individual could wield. On the other hand, it alienates the shit out of them. So you have to engage with this social totality to even touch them. And, you know, a lot of what Marx was trying to do is to imagine how this could be reconciled. Yeah, that's that's a definite parallel with Marx that's here in Bookchin. I just think that Bookchin, by kind of emphasizing economic decentralization as this kind of solution to, you know, I, I don't know. I just don't buy this whole idea that decentralization will be the problem, will be the you know, solution to the problem with scarcity. Oh, yeah. Nor I mean, do I think he has like any real sense of politics, even in his later essay, where he does try to kind of map out what kind of politics should exist today. He doesn't really like. He really fought people into politics proper with the idea of municipalism, really. It was it was like you were saying about how you could be a sort of city planner and feel like a good municipalist. Yeah, and it's not even like revolutionary parliamentarism like Lenin argues for. Like yeah. He actually kind of sees like it's a almost like a new urban like, uh, uh, municipalism type thing. Yeah, like he actually like, sees like the local city council as like a democratic institution that people can use to like run their lives. Whereas like a Marxist proper would just see of a city council as like, you know, an institution that they can subvert to get, you know, some maybe some progressive legislation and but ultimately more so to propagandize from. Well, yeah. yeah, I think the proletariat enters politics in a sense to burn it down. And, and that's oh yeah, as Lenin says, you know, you enter Parliament to destroy it. You know, <laughs> well, the appeal of decentralization is this idea that a lot of the alienation um, politically, like, stems from the excessive, like, layers of mediation between yes, I was deep say individuals the and the, how the forces shape their lives. But like, the, the problem is, like, you do have to have like organization of like the globe, like, as a totality. And you can't you can't just have that by because I mean if that's the case like why not just like make everybody a sovereign citizen? And, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, that's, like, that's another thing that I saw in Con of Endnotes was this kind of idea of this totalizing revolution where there's no mediation and all mediation is abolished. Whereas like I think even in communism like there's going to be some kind of mediation that exists for, to you know just make life easier to manage. You know, yeah. I don't want every single decision to be made by me, other people, you know, I, I, I want something institution. Well, yeah, exactly. Like, once you abolish like class conflict, like you kind of have like to a certain extent abolished like politics, at least at least as we understand it, because yeah, there's a exactly. lot of things that are decided by the government that aren't political. Like well, when the they existence just... of politics in the state or I mean, politics in the state are one in the same. Once you've abolished the state. You you pretty much are in a post political society. Like yeah, I don't because... really, I don't really care like what kind of like standardized hubcaps they decide to purchase for you know like the 
didn't you know, garbage neighborhood? You know what I mean? Because if, if, you're just, if you're just if you just have to go, okay, well, buy that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Because I mean, they're, unless, they're, unless they're going like we're gonna we're gonna purchase from my cousin's company because that way we can make some money and then we could charge six thousand dollars a hubcap. Yeah, that's obviously a political decision I would care about. But if they're just going, uh, this hubcap will work better because this this one's cheap. You know what I mean? Like I don't give a shit about those decisions. I don't need to be like at a town hall meeting to help them decide things like that. You know well, yeah. I mean? yeah. So it's like, like once about, um, basically face to face democracy as like this ideal. Life would be an endless meeting in libertarian. I, I was gonna bring that up. It's an old ultra book joke that it would just be an endless meeting. Like it's just Vermont. He's just basically describing <laughs> Vermont, an idealized version of Vermont, really. Yeah. Ben and Jerry's. Which which makes which makes like the whole Rojava Rojava thing like weird because it's it's, it's a party state. Third world quote unquote third world. Yeah, I figured yes, out the cover. Third world I is the Vermontist. Yeah, I figured out the cover for this episode. It's the it's the four cannon heads: Ben, Jerry, Bookchin, Bernie. <laughs> Perfect. Love it. Yeah, I mean, he's obviously more left wing than Bernie Sanders, though, because he is talking about abolishing capitalism in all oppressive society. But you can see the connection because it's really like, you know. Bernie Sanders type like Vermont local politics, but he got started, and that's kind of you know that's basically bookchinist praxis. Yeah, yeah, I guess I just I brought up that funneling into politics because I I really feel like it. You can contrast that with Marxism. Yeah, you can contrast it with Marxism because in Marxism you're trying basically if you're going to do revolutionary parliamentarism, you're aware that you can't really um, administer the capitalist state for socialist ends. So you're using the parliament or, you know, whatever a legislative body to propagandize. You're using it to build up legitimacy for a revolutionary force. You're not really looking to institute policies in the city council. And well, this- yeah, poli- what, sorry, I got cut off, but I, I'm, I'm back. And I, I guess it's you Do it. seem to pick up the point there. But um, politics, uh Politics kind of exists to perpetuate itself, and a politician in politics is is sort of furthering that. And so I think the reason Marxists, when they enter politics, are anti-politicians is because they're they're not oriented towards the perpetuation of that body. They're there to smash the state. Yeah, and this kind of brings out to me the contrast between what the Harrington wing of DSA is interested in doing and the sort of Kashama Sawant socialist alternative types versus what I think Marxists should be doing in regards to representative institutions. And there's something about municipal politics that's seductive because it's accessible, it's small enough. And so that seems like, you know, you should have enough de-alienated power, but that's not really the reality of the situation. Well, I think, you know, if you can actually win legislation, you should try to but you should try to look at what are reforms that empower the working class in this community. You know, what are reforms that, that, you know, unite the working class and fight divisions in the working class and look at what are, um, what enhances the democratic rights of citizens basically. So I think there is, you know, there, there is, you know, legislation that we can fight for in the halls of, um, 
you know, parliament or, you know, Congress or city council or whatever you want. I don't think it's necessary. We're just there to propagandize and troll. Well, I, otherwise, I agree so with that. Never get voted in. I think that um, there's a sort of um, there's a lot of possibilities f- for that, but it has to be done outside of being downstream of like Democratic Party politics. It seems like the kind of stuff that would have social resonance, the kind of I guess legislative campaigns, would be th- really things like that have an anti-political bend to them too i mean at least at least obstructing the attacks on the working class at the very i mean i don't know i don't really know what you mean by anti-political bend because i mean it's just you're managing society which isn't politics is just a collective project of changing and managing society basically and so the kind of things that people are going to want is it's going to be pretty mundane you know stuff well the thing that really the thing that seems to get like voters out of their seats is the idea that that political sphere is somehow going to be like, you know, lessened in their lives. Yeah, like the swamp will be drained somehow. Uh, I don't know. I feel like that's that's the that's a right wing platform, in my opinion. I don't think that's what we should be trying to use. We should be trying to empower the working class rather than kind of destroy the state, for example, because we can't destroy the state by running for it. Like, you can't, there's not a switch. No, I'm not you saying can... you pick that apart piece by piece in any sort of, That that's not, I, I really don't think that's what we need to do either, a sort of. Well, I mean, like, what, 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 what are the kind of, like, demands and political issues that will get people out of their seat? Something that isn't sort of in the political echo chamber right now, like. Uh, yeah. A living, a living wage, rather than saying, "Oh, fifteen an hour." Or I mean, healthcare is what's getting people interested. That is, that is what people are talking about in the political echo chamber and outside of it. Well, healthcare is a serious issue, but the extent that it's in the political echo chamber is the extent that people that are personally affected by it end up getting tired of it because they hear people flapping their gums about it. They hear, they see a lot of you know hue and cry. They see a lot of you know like people taking positions and doing campaigns and and combating each other on it and i don't really think we see people doing campaigns though like, there's I don't a think whole... there, there isn't really a mass movement in america for healthcare right now I mean, on the there's right whole, any kind of marxist legislative project i i think electorally speaking has to have at, at very least two the anti-political components of the people running for office need to not be running as politicians and so the kind of things that it might have social resonance maybe that i was talking about before could be things like term limits and measures like that 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 are empowerments of the state in an abstract way but also disempower that kind of separate sphere of politics that people feel infiltrating their lives so it's i guess to sort of double back a little bit that's well i think the, the ultimate destruction of politics as a separate sphere can only happen with the withering away of the state completely and which comes with the destruction of classes because even if you have a, a proletarian state that's an extreme democracy it's still an impersonal and alienated body sure but I, I think what, what people are longing for should inform our our actions well honestly i think what it's what what people are calling like the anti-political moment comes down to something way simpler which is that people are beginning to suspect that the system is increasingly not working for them and so when candidates or figures come up who 
everyone in what is considered the establishment goes, well, if this person's good elected, they'll ruin everything. People will go, well, it's already ruined, so fuck it. And then they vote for it, for Brexit or Trump or whatever, you know. So, like, that's if if that stuff is like a bellwether for like anti political sentiment, I think that's basically where it's coming from. I don't think there's anything like super complicated about that. Well, th- that's a particular, like, a particularly strong manifestation of a secular trend for like the last 40 years where people are disengaged. So, I mean, really, since uh, democratic rights have, have been actually extended, um, there's there's been like a parallel sort of shift. There's a weird historical tendency wherever you see an expansion of the franchise, you also see the uh, strengthening of the executive <laughs> and the weakening of electoral, the power for, for electoral means to change society. So there's a sense in which the anti-political stuff that Grant is talking about that could be accomplished through legislature would be stuff like electoral, like hard electoral reform, where you could crack open like the two-party system, for instance. I think well, that yeah, would be I think something that, that would have sense. a lot it's of fighting fun. for, but that's a political reform. You're fighting for increased democracy within the bourgeois state. Yes. Which it, is, and, I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying that is. Yeah, it's. It's political. Then there's a dialectical language game I'm not entirely comfortable with here. But like, yeah, in the sense that it's against the established realm of politics that people deal with, it's anti-political in that sense. It's political in the sense that it is a reform to the state and a reform to, to politics. And it's a democratizing reform, though. And, and that's part of what it's anti-political. I mean, I mean, not in the totally literal way that like, because extreme democracy abolishes this it's not piece by piece but in a very real sense that democratization of the state is on the micro level what's necessary legislatively too or or we're never going to have socialists in office or anything like that well and it's like it's it's democratization but it is like the result of class conflict like the problem is like yeah we have these increased formal democratic rights but the bourgeoisie you know basically bought and paid for every aspect of the federal and state governments you know yeah. and be, because yeah. we can't because we don't think in terms of class politics like people don't have a language with which to articulate that dissonance well, so that at the most well. they'll view it in terms of like corruption in other words you know like the the special interests, elites, or just the the political class. People talk about political class. It's weird. Oh yeah, and it is. It is a. It's kind of a Bernheimite idea of like class analysis of the elite and political class. But I was going to say that um that because the two parties are basically just cartels for capitalists, that um. There's no that people have no way of engaging in the collective process of running society that politics today is specifically for expert and designed for experts. And so basically what you'd be fighting against is you'd be fighting against like governances for experts and and and, and, and by something that should be done by yes. the masses. It's 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 not the elimination of specialists right away, but it's it's certainly their disempowering of them having sort of a special privileged status. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, what you were saying about the collapse of the political sphere into bourgeois interests, I think that's like the heart of it, and that's why anti-politics. You know, it's it's kind of a perhaps it's a smokescreen for different ways of conceiving how to attack the political like certainly some people like like the the right wing anti-politics drain the swamp and what steve bannon means by destroy the state uh of course they want to destroy the very parts of the state 
<laughs> that you know we might actually like consider preserving where we want to destroy the parts of the state that they want to preserve <laughs> yeah right but the public and and those that are depoliticized which again if if not voting was a candidate not voting would have won the election depoliticized doesn't necessarily mean apolitical a lot of people are simply disgusted well it's very i mean it's it's a very common feeling to be disgusted but to feel like that there's no real alternative basically and that's the problem with anti-politics is that it doesn't offer an alternative it's it's sure. I disagree completely. Discuss. I think it it points it's it's an it's a trend that points us to the fact that when we go into these institutions, we can't be operating with a bureaucratic logic of reproducing them. We have to be um, even where we empower them. It has to be an empowerment that orients towards that deconstructing, like the existence of this body that is going to, I mean, not to the point where we decentralize everything, but, but this specific body of politics with its specific internal logic, taking I'm, that out. I mean, I, I really think that, you know, the swamp in our name partially refers to how Lenin talks about the swamp. And it also is sort of a playful echo of, you know, the drain the swamp meme from the Trump campaign. <laughs> And I think there's some weird family resemblance convergence there. But the reason the idea of the swamp is there been there for a long time. I don't know if you've ever seen the show. Uh, yes, Minister. Um, it's a lovely BBC. Or I don't know if it's a BBC show. It's a lovely British show about how the deep state uh, tends to manipulate, you know, any I idealist that wanders into its doors. Bernard. I want to have a word with you about Professor Marriott's article. Yes, I think it's about time we reform local government. Do you, Bernard? Yes. <laughs> At least I think I did. Uh, that is, I'm not wholly against it. Although there are many uh, convincing, uh, some might say conclusive, arguments against it. Some might indeed, Bernard. <laughs> yes. Why? Because, Bernard, once you create genuinely democratic local communities, it won't stop there. Won't it? Well, of course it won't. You see, once they get established, they'll insist on more power. And the politicians will be too frightened to withhold them, so you'll get regional government. Uh, would that matter? Bernard's going to sit down. <laughs> Bernard, what happens at the moment if there is some vacant land in, say, Nottingham, and their rival proposals for its use, you know, a hospital, a college, or an airport. Well, we set up an interdepartmental committee, Department of Health, Department of Education, Department of Transport, Treasury, Environment, ask for papers, hold meetings, propose, discuss, revise, report back, redraft, normal thing. Precisely. Months of fruitful work. <laughs> Leading to a mature and responsible conclusion. But if you have regional government, they decide it all in Nottingham. Probably in a couple of meetings, complete amateurs. It is their city. And what happens to us? Well, much less work. Yes, much less work. So little that ministers might almost be able to do it on their own. So we'd have much less power. Well, I don't know whether I really want power. Bernard, if the right people don't have power, do you know what happens? The wrong people get it. <laughs> Politicians, councillors. 
ordinary voters. But aren't they supposed to in a democracy? This is a British democracy. <laughs> uh, it's quite good for drawing out some of but the concerns. I mean, this is concern, just the, the idea have. that, you know, you can't operate the bourgeois state and administer, bourgeois, administer capitalism. I mean, like, that's just basic Marxist knowledge. I don't think you need to subscribe to this theory of anti-politics to understand that. No, no, no. But in order to understand like, the last 40 years of electoral activity and why the only trend seems to be throw the bums out, it's not like, you know, a, a fundamental, like, invariant law of capitalism that this will happen. This well, is I think it's a social era. Well, the fact that, you know, the invariant trend is towards just throw the bums out is a socially constructed reality. And so therefore we can either I, I, I think and, it's a reflection of a left that has over and over again entered these institutions and only perpetuated them. Oh, well, it's there's in, a, it's 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 historically socially constructed situation and it is not ha you know it is and so therefore it's a result of social relations that can be changed and challenged and politically fought against but who's and saying it who's saying it isn't yeah 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 seriously value socially constructed who gives a shit well we can and we can destroy value we can abolish the value form because but you know not, not easily humans can collectively change the social conditions of their existence that's the whole basis of marxism is that as humans because our conditions of existence are historically and socially constructed we as humans can collectively change those social historical relations and so sure yeah no one disagrees with that it, it's just that we right like all politics today has to deal with anti-politics the only successful candidates anywhere People are not normally jazzed about their particular ideas. What they're jazzed about is the overall feeling, even, that this is the guy that's going to shake things up. And so I, mean, like deeper, I think there's ahead. a deeper wisdom to the anti-political sort of sense of the masses. I think it really is a rejection of, of a common flaw on the left of, of approaching of approaching these institutions. I'm not against political intervention, but what I'm against is the way the left always approaches these institutions as basically philosopher kings who are like <laughs> going to be the next sort of bureaucrats and and people are sick of that. So well, I, I, I think know. it's more so centrist technocrats that people actually encounter that the main but what was the Soviet it's not really it's not like leftist radicals who are like it's, it, but it's not like leftist radicals who are like social the social worker who's fucking you over. Like it's gonna be like some hillbot centrist type. I mean, you know. but I, and then I, where do leftists? It's anti-politics actually new. It's no, not. I, no, it's it's just that yeah, it's it's a been a constant thread throughout history. Like it's just it's, another word for populism. I, I guess I believe it's a thread of Marxism. It's it's a. I mean, I'm not saying it's a fundamental premise but it's i think it's a thread throughout marxism too i mean there's an anti-statist thread throughout marxism i would say that but marxism is inherently a political project yes but nothing. yes but i mean look look at how the sp day in its first few decades deals with the parliament they have like a couple ministers in parliament and all they do is like rail against uh, the imperial state they rail against the wars they 
block any attacks on the working class in order to do class politics. It's going when politics is an alienated bourgeois sphere in order to do politics for decades what you're just going to have to do is block and be defensive and just well, be yeah, like, you're going look. to have to fight like literally as uh, we say in the enemy camp yes tooth and nail and you're not going to be able to do a whole lot like that's that is a positive policy because you're it's such a hostile environment and so that's what i think grant is trying to get at what I would say is, uh, what do we, what do we practically do? Do we abstain from this alienated sphere of politics, or do we? No, no, and that's not what's it? being argued. That that's because that's, that's that the thing. That's that's the leftcom argument is that you know this alienated sphere of politics is just so awful and disgusting that we need to abstain from it completely in order to maintain purity. Well, whereas, let's, let's bring whereas it back maybe to we would say that we kind of have to surf the swamp. <laughs> but <laughs> I I just think that we need to we need to enter it in a way that. We need to enter it in a way that doesn't funnel us into. I, maybe this is where Lexi was about to go. Yeah. Into civic duty and civic. Right. Nah, I'm all. I'm all about that. I think. I think anti-politics is a rejection of functionalism, really, in a sense. Uh, I think that like a revolution. The rejection would have of a to... functionalist Marxism that that ends up administering the state, but but. I, I don't know. I, I no, no. I, I agree with that. I agree with I that. I mean, I just think that's Leninism in a lot of ways too. Functional. I don't well, disagree. Well, I mean, I only agree in the sense that Leninism it turned out bad, and that's not what I want. <laughs> like, okay, so I mean, just Orthodox Marxism. You know, the this debate it goes back to nineteen oh four. I think Orthodox Marxism has a has an anti political aspect to it i'm not saying marxism equals anti-politics but, but it, it has an anti-political component well, to yeah, it, it, ha it has an anti-state component to it is really what i'm i think that people are trying to get at what yes. i was going to say is that marx for example distinguished and for example these debates about the political and the economic they go back to french social democracy and you had for example um i think Marx. you had a faction of yeah, french social democracy who you know were completely against operating in the state and against any kind of political struggle and just wanted to do only economic struggle, very much like the the, the group workers' offensive. And Marx, that quote, you know, I am not a Marxist, comes from that. You know, what, like what, Marx said about those people in the Social Democratic Party, that is Marxism. I am not a Marxist. And for example, Donald, Donald, none of, none of us, none of us believe that though. That's the no, thing. No, no, no. I'm saying, but further on in French social democracy, you have the Millerandists, who were basically today's um, equivalent of social democrats. Like this is an early debate between in social democracy on whether or not we should become ministers in the executive government. And so there was a big theoretical debate in social democracy in around 1902, 1904 about becoming ministers in the executive state whether it was acceptable or not. And Kotsky argued in, along with Luxembourg that it wasn't, whereas the, the French Social Democrats tended to, um, you know, they, they actually did enter government and become ministers, whereas Kotsky said that this was leading towards revisionism. So, like, this debate goes all the way back in Marxism to the original days. I, I don't disagree. I think it's a, it becomes a key question in Marxism whether we should enter as, as administrators of of the society or 
Although that is kind of, of a question of for another day because uh, it's not really a super pressing concern. I think what I think what Donald is concerned about is this like recourse towards like economism, where it's like we just need to focus on like organizing workers, you know, and everything else is bullshit, and or even just like this kind of like weird like nihilism you sometimes see on Left Book, where it's like yeah, it's I'm all fucked because twenties and. Now everything is just negative dialectic that's tending towards fucking, you know, circling the drain and, you know, we're all fucking, uh, it's all going to hell in a handbasket. If if your fundamental orientation is the merger formula, it's a little bit hard not to feel like that sometimes because the reason why we're talking anti-politics isn't because we're workerists and we think we should spend all our time trying to uh, revive the dead heart of the labor movement right right this moment like the the reason is is because the political is for the right now is closed for the reason that we don't have labor to have have a base on and the, the left hasn't figured out an alternative base building strategy and right now if you enter politics the only way you're going to reproduce your existence in politics is by political logic by the logic well i think that people had the proletariat actually behind marxist organizations then interventions into politics can still have life breathed into them sort of anti-capitalist life still breathed into them by virtue of the working class actually being the left social base well i was gonna say this i think the only entry point is is red lizard that's it well, I think that we're going to I would need, say that's we're like going to need red lizards in order to have a revolution. Like that's just a reality. Of I don't fact. think you're, but I don't think you're a red lizard if you're actually bound to the democratic aims of the working class. The demo, the working class isn't. I, I mean, I it's, it's, we're it's, thinking it's, about it's, you can fight. You can fight against similar it. Similar in different ways at the same time. It's like bureaucracy is something that inevitably happens, but you can have democratic controls that push against it and. And limited, sure, but it's not it's something you can totally necessarily a lizard, though. You know, it's 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 a different. Category. Well, I think I think a socialist politician is a politician, and they will be viewed by the public in that way. And what you need to do is, you would have to think about what would a real campaign look like. You would have to put a lot of those questions into place. But um, well, I think what you know, like the pre- the precondition for all of this is there need to be like more. Marxists like in the working class who kind of understand this and you know basically propagandize to other people around them essentially. Well, you know? yeah, and I mean, you can say, look, there's only five percent of the workforce that's unionized, but five percent of the workforce is still a large amount of people. And if you go into that workforce and you work amongst them, you can learn very valuable skills on how to organize outside of the workplace as well. Like there's still reason to involve ourselves in what exists today of the you know the labor movement as we of, of, co- of course there is of course there's reason to do that. However, and I'm not saying that you're not arguing this, but when we discuss oh you know union struggles a long shot, politics seems blocked, therefore nihilism. It's because it's blocking out like all the other political possibilities that are well, out I think there. and I, I think have to be honest to... I feel like a lot of those are, are kind of dismal even though they concern my personal well-being but you know well, there are other avenues of struggle available that we I are gonna, just gonna have to get involved with like 
I think there's a tendency to see political parties as basically forming from unions coming together. Like the original workers' parties, there's this idea that there were unions that spontaneously formed, then these unions came together and formed the workers' parties, and then Marxists came into the workers' parties and convinced them of their program. But it really wasn't like that at all. Actually, a lot of these parties started out as just small circles of intellectuals and slowly made contacts with working class militants. And the party itself was actually a vehicle through which the unions were made. So it wasn't really like the party came from the union so much as the unions were created by party militants consciously going into the workforce. And that, not, that, I'm not necessarily arguing for like an industrialization policy where all members are required to commit class suicide or something like that. But what I'm saying is that it was the active conscious intervention of communist leaders in struggles that basically made unions flourish. And there's a lot of good academic studies that show that unions led by communists were a lot more effective at winning gains for their members. And that's why the U.S. government cracked down on them so hard and promoted the mob. Donald, I don't, I don't have like a, a problem with the idea that communists and politics and socialist politics had a large role in making the unions what they were. But I just gut check as a Marxist, assume that the overall economic situation has a lot of causal power. And the overall economic situation is, you know, incredibly dismal for workers' power. Well, it's and incredibly yeah. dis it's incredibly dismal, but it's we need to look at where it isn't where there is workers' power today. We need to I find mean, those small spaces. Maybe those small we shouldn't corners of of where there is class struggle. For example, the SI Cobas in Italy. We need to look at those places and try to learn from those and generalize those lessons because that's how the original labor movement worked was that militants traveled around and taught each well, other what yes, they learned in other countries and in different conditions but but i i don't maybe we shouldn't just organize around the workers maybe we should organize around the broader proletariat specifically well, the labor you know, reserve army well specifically well the surplus population because they're Basically, capitalist production is slowly phasing out much of like the workers. Like, if you look at it globally, twenty percent. Like, um, in the past two decades, like global, like the number of manufacturing workers has increased heavily, and fundamentally organized even the workers that are still around, like service workers. You have to fundamentally organize them in a different way because their jobs well, are different than the manufacturing workers that made up like the old labor. That movement. is true. Like, I mean, that, less... goes, that is actually kind of more true to the situation of what it was like in the Paris Commune, where the working class assemblies can't come from workplaces, but from working class neighborhoods. And so I think maybe looking at organizing things in terms of working class neighborhoods is a, a better way of doing it. And that's the suggestion McNair has made. But I think we still are, if we're going to be building organizations, we're going to be having members who are in unions and we're going to have to engage with unions in, in some way. I'm not saying don't engage with unions or anything like that. I'm saying like fundamentally our, our movement has to be different because we're dealing with a fundamentally altered proletariat overall. We're dealing with a proletariat that's more surplus population than just workers, you know? Well, and I think it's also that we're dealing with a proletariat that's more multinational than ever before. That the post-colonial period that we're in, we truly faced, you know, the, the reality through mass immigration of 
a truly global proletariat of all ethnicities. And so that makes the difficulties of uniting the entire class actually more difficult. You know, if you think about the problems of chauvinism that are arising in Europe and whatnot. Those aren't really new. What is new is deindustrialization. And honestly, I feel like deindustrialization, even more than global migration, has made class discourse like like what is what is what is deindustrialization deindustrialization is basically the flight of a a lot of like but with uh, deindustrialization just spreads the proletariat around more of the world so let's 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 talk about deindustrialization though deindustrialization is like traditional uh productive sectors in the bourgeois sense of you know like manufacturing like uh deserting where it can to basically do labor arbitrage with cheaper regimes in the third world. And then because of a good advances in logistics, you can ship that stuff to the first world. No. And, and um, because you have, you know, a multinational bourgeoisie, it doesn't really matter where you localize production. You can always incorporate wherever the tax benefits are best and sell to everybody. So deindustrialization refers to the process of moving <laughs> All of that manufacturing. Yeah, so it's basically capital flight to, you know, where there's lower, where the price of labor is lower because you have regimes that have very lax labor laws and despotic governments, for example. Yeah, so some, sometimes people, thought of as neoliberalism. And people are also living, you know, you also have like a lot of peasants in those societies still. And so people will work for super low wages because they're still able to partially be self subsistent. And so, yeah, I agree that, you know, deindustrialization means that in the United States, and I think it's actually a process that goes with imperialism itself, that imperialist powers tend to invest more and more towards finance and less and less in actual industry and then put, you know, and then export industry elsewhere. And so as a result, in order to, you know, keep society proletarianized, the service industry fills in that gap. And so basically there's a question of, well, you know, the factory system doesn't unite people. Um, I mean, or the service industry doesn't unite workers as a collective bargaining unit the same way as a service industry. And so that presents an extreme challenge for modern unionization. Yeah. Um, so and I, I totally recognize a- that, but I still think that there will be defensive, like the working class will form defensive organizations and meet its needs. They might be things like workers' centers and whatnot. Um, so just as a note, um, we're a little over an hour. Um, Let's tie this back to book, Jen. Yeah, we should do that and then wrap it up. Well, I mean, what this all has to do kind of with book, Jen, is book Jen's idea of politics, I guess, and just kind of, he, he kind of just thinks that local governments and municipalities themselves are, you know, ways for the working class to directly express its power when they are very much mediated forms as he would critique in his earlier work yeah when does he make that break to like you know autonomous kind of anarchist sentiments to like yeah maybe we should run city governments because i don't know because i i really feel like i know he was in the libertarian party towards the late 70s early 80s (laughs) hey it was a shot libertarian you know that means anarchists in other places which is because the Libertarian Party was actually like trying to appeal towards the new left, which is funny. I was actually thinking, um, it's funny because in Spain, in the CNT, there was actually a faction called the, the Libertarian Possibilists who believed in running in elections. 
And so it's kind of funny that um, Bookchin, his strain, you could probably actually trace it back to like them. And I know that Bookchin is actually a historian of the of the Spanish anarchists. So he probably knew about those people and was thinking of them when he was making this like kind of change. That's interesting. You, you know, the thing that I want to stress about Bookchin and to connect it to the lizard conversation we're having earlier um, is that... Well, well first of all, what, what is the lizard like? Just uh, so it's, it's like a, it's a goofy like kind of way of talking about the disembodied agent of capital that especially the way that David Icke talks about it and which it's a crypto anti-Semitic thing, but I think it gets away from the figure of the Jew and gets more to this agent of, of uh, an unimaginable power. It's just like this impersonalized, like the, the emotionless bureaucrat basically. Yeah. That, that has become capital. It's like the state department intern or, or somebody who runs Jacobin, or somebody who goes on Chapo. Well, yeah, and I mean, I think what we're trying to do is sort of because every like Chapo has the critique of of this type, you know that that's what they got famous for. But like, what what the left needs to do is now look inward, Padawan, and and do that critique at itself. Well, yeah, that's what Antipix is partially there's about. A, there's a battle for democracy within the left itself. I'd say. And I feel something like libertarian municipalism, while it has a lot of, you know, really interesting insights and is basically crypto Marxism, um, it is asking people to enter politics on the wrong level. It's not it's it's putting too much faith in our ability to administer capitalism and overestimating how good of an idea that will be to administer capitalism. And so it should be instructive for the DSA types around now, or even people that are watching how socialist alternatives electoral strategy is panning out, like that, you know, without some kind of small charismatic authority, they're not going to get a city council seat. And even if you do get a city council seat, it's only going to be as popular as, you know, the bourgeois state of Seattle well, is popular. What I wish like people in city council seats would do is, you know, actually provide resources for people to do direct action and form tenant unions and actually work with the masses to help form tenant unions and things like that in their neighborhood and form mutual aid associations. Like that's actually someone in an elected position could use their, you know, a position of authority basically in society to inspire people to do projects like that. I, I agree with that that formulation, but I think that entering into a city council to do it is an too insular, and it is something that the left is going to think about because a lot of the left is around urban areas, or at the very least is navel-gazing so hard they can't see anything outside of their own area. Where we should be looking at are accessible positions of power that, that actually cover more territory than just the city, because famously... You know, leftists are cluster around cities, are obsessed with cities, and don't really give a fuck about the broader proletariat that lives scattered around. Like, there needs to be some reckoning with town and country, which was an old Marxist issue that sort of disappeared from discourse. Yeah, that's and, something I like to talk about, actually. Yeah, and and so that means we should be probably getting involved at the state level rather than the city level. Yeah, I mean, I can I can see an argument against city council elections just leading to sewer socialism. I think it's I don't want to discourage it totally, but yeah, that's that's my I think, feeling. 
it's something that needs to be done with that in mind, at least. I'm not totally against it. I think at this point, we basically need to be trying whatever tactics that we can possibly muster. But <laughs> because sure. that's how desperate of no, a situation we're in. For, for, for more practical people that want to, like, take a shot at it, that's fine. But, you know, I'm an armchair quarterback. And so if I'm ever going to get off my ass, it's going to be for something that I think, you know, is, is going to be worth doing. And so that's that's why I'm saying. Like, I actually don't, like, oppose people running for city council. They think they could do something, but I'm just skeptical of it, and I think we should be. Well, what I think is interesting is that Bernie Sanders, more so than Occupy, seems to have made socialist ideology popular. Precisely. And, and, and But the thing is, Occupy came out of what, – what Occupy did kind of just come out of society, though. Like, it was kind of just, like, random, spontaneous. It was people. somewhat spontaneous. But whereas Bernie Sanders, he came from the political scene and he had more of an influence on the popularity of socialism, I think, than Occupy did. And so I think that's something to keep in mind about like. But Bernie Sanders' popularity is so downstream of the social formations that led to Occupy and 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 Occupy it's. Occupy had an intervention into American politics, I think. And I'm not totally saying that it, I mean, as a revolutionary strategy, what Occupy did was not very productive, but. Occupy burned out a bunch of like people that were sort of crypto anarchists and ended, ended up routing them towards the Sanders campaign, probably. I mean. And they probably started reading book chain. Yeah, I just think that, <laughs> that. Bernie is kind of downstream of of the social in a certain way, even though he's a political figure and confined to that. His emergence, I mean. I don't think you get the the Sanders campaign as it was without Occupy. And that's not to contradict Donald's point, because if anything, the Sanders campaign shot too high. It shot for the executive prime executive office. And again, executive office. We have to stress that we probably don't want to be in the executive role. Well, and you don't get any of that without the financial crisis and the Iraq war. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, all this stuff is all ultimately things. tied to contradictions in capitalism that are not going to go away. Like the kind of contradictions all that led to the financial collapse and that led to the Iraq war are probably going to be getting worse in coming years. And so... Also, okay, I was going to point out that I don't think the term socialism would actually be as popular as as it is now if he didn't specifically shoot for the executive no that's true or like even the phrase socialism without well but that trend did start under obama because like when there were polls that were conducted at the time that the more like republicans said he was a socialist like the better he did so i feel like that was already kind of that was already kind of in the works and it's something that maybe he just accelerated it's just that socialism won't die you know, the Soviet Union died in 1991. There were a few years where everyone just thought that, you know, it's laser glasses of champagne and celebrate because it's over and we've figured it out. But, you know, it, it, it wasn't going to take long until, you know, the, the, the contradictions of class society would manifest their ugly head and people would start, you know, re rediscovering the ideas of socialism. Yeah, but I... Um, just to extrapolate Rose's point, um, ah, fuck, I lost it. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I don't got it. I don't got it. God, those we just got on that. 
Oh, fuck, I had a yeah, point. I, yeah, sorry. I had to play with sound effects. No, 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 it's cool. Yeah. It's cool. I, I like... I fucked, I, like it. No, I, I fucked it all up. I fucked it all up. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no honestly, I think what the sound effects add uh, is, is more, more than worth the distraction. That's it for this week. I don't know how exactly we got to the subject of anti-politics. It didn't really have anything to do with the main subject, but it has been a sort of trend going around left book lately, and I suspect that we'll return to it in the future. Next week, we'll sit down to talk about Bordiga. If you need to get a hold of us, you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, leave us a good review on iTunes or like us on Facebook. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. <laughs>